Galatians chapter 4. First couple verses, he's going to conclude his argument from last week, the previous section, but then build to a new one. To be reminded, and this is the fun part, that we recognize the scriptures have two authors, right? We are very clear in understanding that this was written by Paul, a real man, written to a very specific audience. But it was also written by the Holy Spirit, written to a very specific audience, which is fun because it meant that when the Galatian church read this the first time, it was written directly to them. And when I read this to you now, it was written directly to you. No less designed for you today than the Galatian church originally. This is God's word for you. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would speak. You've spoken in the reading of your word. We ask that you would speak in the preaching of your word. And here we read of the Spirit who is the deposit, the down payment of salvation. And if we are your sons, we have Him working within us. And so, Lord, we pray that your Spirit would be active now. That as your Word goes out in Christ, that it would be received and applied in the Spirit and that we would be transformed. Lord, we we learn a lot as we study your word and preaching here, but that's not our goal. Our goal is transformation and glorification. That we would be transformed and glorify you. And so we ask that you would do that now. We don't have the ability to do these things. We cannot transform ourselves. We've tried, it doesn't work. We cannot glorify you. We're far too small fallen, broken people. But you can do these in us. And so we ask that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's start with two portraits at the beginning. One, Michael Jackson. All right. Great music. Some of it. No, actually the documentary on him by Martin Bashir a number of years ago Uh, You know, Michael Jackson in his later years was not terribly keen on interviews. He was a bit of an enigma and a kind of wacky guy in general. Uh, But somehow, I I don't know how it happened, but the British gentleman, Martin Brashear, managed to con his people into letting him do uh, kind of like a a mini documentary on his life where he was able to kind of come and stay with him and interview him and spend long-term interactions with Michael Jackson. 
And uh, I remember, I think it was in seminary, watching it with my uh, roommates. And it was kind of, it was gripping and horrifying all at the same time. Right? It was like driving down the interstate and having that like massive accident right next to you. Where you're like, I don't want to look at it, but I can't look away. Right? Because Brashear kind of dove into the psyche of Michael Jackson to say, what does it look like for a man to reach the pinnacle of human existence at five years old? I mean, what is it, five, six years old, he, Grammys, loaded, rich beyond all belief, famous beyond all belief. I mean, he, he had everything that the world could offer by the time he was as tall as my hip. Right? I mean, he, he was one of the greatest vocalists, brilliant, brilliant dancer, brilliant entertainer, filthy rich, famous. I mean, everything that he, the world could offer, he had. And in spades, I mean, he had buku amount, just all of it. And as Martin Bashir comes into his house, you, you got to see it. It broke him because he had everything. And as he had everything, he realized it wasn't enough. And in kind of like one moment of clarity, you could kind of see in this great interview, there's kind of this one moment of brokenness where Michael Jackson just said, I'm just so bored. I'm just so bored. He would wake up at like three in the morning and hop on his go-kart and drive it up and down the, the, you know, the halls of his house inside. Which, I mean, for most little boys, that sounds absolutely amazing, right? Driving go-karts inside at three in the morning. But for an adult in their 40s or 50s, it's like, not a well-adjusted human, right? He was just so bored. He had all of the restraints taken off in his life, and he was bored. A second illustration, one that most of you will have no idea of, Nick will know, soccer illustration, a young man named Raheem Sterling. Raheem Sterling used to play for Liverpool, doesn't anymore. I'm glad about that. But in the UK, they pay their athletes by the week, which I like because it puts a little bit of like reality to it, right? We pay our athletes by the year, and the numbers, are, it's funny money. We don't even understand what it looks like. And paying them by the week, it puts it into a little bit more of like understandable terms. And Raheem was paid, I forget what his salary used to be. It was 5,000 pounds a week or something, $8,000 a week, something insane, but not bad, right? <clears throat> a couple of years ago when he was still playing for Liverpool, he took a pay raise, where his weekly salary, weekly salary, went from 5,000 pounds a week to 180,000 pounds a week. Which, for those of you that don't know how to calculate pounds to dollars in your head, that's, according to today's rates, uh, $254,394 a week. So by the time you know, April rolls around, he's made your lifetime salary for most of you, right? <laughs> The thing that was amazing about this is that when this happened for Raheem, he was 19 years old. Lived by himself. He may have been 18. He was 18 or 19 years old. And his weekly salary went to a quarter of a million dollars. It's been three or four years since that big deal went through. Uh, He now has more children than the tabloids know how to count from more relationships than the tabloids can keep track of. He has soured his relationship with two teams and potentially destroyed his career. He was uh, the most promising athlete of a generation in England and is now fighting for a spot on the team. He's good, but he's no longer the great one. Because what happened was he came into all of his wealth way early. 
didn't have any boundaries on him, any kind of guideposts. He didn't have anybody taking care of him, telling him, no, like, don't be a knucklehead. Live in a normal house. Drive a Civic. Save it all. (laughs) Right? I think he bought a McLaren his second week of the paycheck or something and was driving a car that costs more than I'll make this century. He had all of the the boundaries in his life taken off too early. In both of these men, you see what happens when they come into riches before they're ready. Right? When a human heart comes into riches before it's ready, it breaks the brain. It just destroys them. It, It turns them inside out, upside down, and just makes them into a puddle of mush. It is terrible for the human soul. In chapter 4 of Galatians, we see actually the contrast, the the flip side of that same type of experience. We see a child coming into the greatest inheritance of all time, right? Not $250,000 a week, which is funny money. I mean, that's ridiculous. But something even greater than that. Coming into the salvation and the blessing of God, coming into all of the riches of God's blessings being poured out on people. But it's interesting how God does it differently than European soccer or the American music industry. How the Lord actually cares for his people. How the Lord actually cares for his people. We're going to see, again, three, I like three. We're going to see three points about who God is, how he interacts with his people, and then apply those as we go. The first thing to see is that the Lord, in Christ, God demonstrates his patience in salvation. Sorry, in Jesus, in Christ, God demonstrates his patience in salvation. We pick up chapter 4, and the, the chapter break is kind of a bit of an odd one here because he's finishing the argument from the end of chapter 3. He's picking up this idea of the guardian, the nanny, and kind of working it to its logical end. I mean, with the heir, as long as he is a child, he's no different from a slave, though he's owner of everything. And that doesn't make any sense to us because most of us were not raised in this time. None of us were. We're too young for that. But we're not raised in the context of nannies and such. You remember... This time in human history, it was very common for wealthier folks uh, to employ a slave, I use that term employ very loosely, uh, to keep a slave who was in charge of raising the children. And this, ch- this slave was the disciplinarian of the children and functioned in many ways kind of like the parent. Right? They were more than a, a nanny, but less than a teacher. They were kind of like their own traveling boarding school, right? I mean, they, they raised the children. And again, it's written very well documented in Greek Roman history. Their favorite form of discipline was if the child was being naughty, right? Grab them by the ear, twist their ear, and yank them out of the marketplace, drag them home until the real discipline could take place. And very common, very well documented. Uh, again, Alexander the Great is famous for his great affection for his. It's very common all throughout history, Greek and Roman history. The interesting thing, though, is that while this uh, relationship was being developed, the interesting thing is that the rich kid, the child who was being raised by the slave, was constantly affiliated with the slave so that you could not distinguish the difference, right? It's a slave walking around with children. Now, again, when we think slavery, we automatically think slavery based on skin color, which is an abomination, As it is, it should be. It's an abomination. This time, slavery is not based on skin color, and it was still an abomination. 
But it was slavery based upon uh, cultural or you know, invasions, or if you were uh, unbearably poor, you could sell yourself into slavery and try to save your family in all kinds of just different ways than what we have here today. Uh, but so now, I mean, like when we think of slavery, we tend to think of very visually identifiable, which is tragic in so many ways. But in ancient Greece and Rome, you would not have been able to look at skin color and make a judgment, which you shouldn't be able to do today either. But when you looked, you could never tell the difference. And so when a slave was walking around with children, you would not know if those were the slave's children, and they were the children of slavery, or if those were the slave's rich, snotty kids that he was taking care of. You you would have no idea which one they were. It was just children associated with slavery. And Paul picks up this image to begin to refer to the church and explain how God has interacted with his people, right? I mean that the heir, the church, God's people... As long as he is a child, he's no different from a slave. He's raised by the slave. He spends time with the slave. He walks like the slave. He talks like the slave. He has the same income as the slave, which is nothing. It's the same. Even though this child's going to be the owner of everything that belongs to the estate. This child will eventually own the house. They'll own all of the livestock. They'll own the person who's training them, which is an abomination. They're going to own everything. But you wouldn't be able to tell it. But he is, this child is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So until the child matures enough to get to an age where he's responsible and understands how business works and is able to take care of the livestock and to manage the household and dad is old enough that he wants to retire and pass all of that on to the son. Until that age comes, the child is... Restrained, has boundaries placed upon him, has these guardrails to keep him in place until he is ready to receive all of the riches of his inheritance. And Paul is explaining this is how the Lord has worked with his church. Right? The Lord has all of the riches of heaven, mercy and grace, Peace and kindness, joy and love. And honestly, when Adam and Eve sinned and fell right there, could the Lord have found a way to fix it right there on the spot? He could have, right? He's very clever. (laughs) Infinitely clever. But people weren't ready. And so instead, he gave them something different to prepare people for the time when that salvation would happen. First, he, he gave them themselves. He let them go, right? They last, you get the impression, not very long, because then six chapters later, he kills them all except for eight because they're so bad. So try it on your own. Let's see how it goes. Oh, it goes so badly that God kills you all. That doesn't work very well. Good try. Not so much. Well, so then after that, they come out and he gives them the promises of God to say, well, all right, you have yourselves, but now you can at least trust in the promises of God. Let's see how you do. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the family of God, and does the church do well? <laughs> not, not, not really, do they? A small portion of people, and they continue this small, tiny little thread. And then he goes from there and even goes so far as to give them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments and all of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and all of the weight and heaviness and breadth and beauty and majesty of all of the ceremonial law and the civil law, the moral law, all of the law of God. And when God's people go to interact with that, what what does it do? (laughs) 
right? It crushes them. Because as we interact with the law, we see, I can't keep it over and over and over and over again. I can't keep it. I break it all the time. I mean, I'm a a believer. I have the Holy Spirit residing in me, and I still can't keep it. Not perfectly. And so the law functions as a guardian. It it functions to be this guardrail to keep the church kind of in line, but to build them to the point where they're ready. To build to the point where the church is longing for an external salvation that just can't come from me. Many of you, this actually is kind of paralleled in your salvation, in your, in your story of conversion or how you started to walk with the Lord, isn't it? For some of you. Where your story is that you tried everything you could think of to order your life. You, perceive, you pursued everything that you knew would try to give you some sense of meaning. You pursued your job and... and respect there you pursued uh, opposite sex and relationships there you you pursued whatever it was and as you continually pursued all of these different things you found out that that none of them were good enough that you could never find enough meaning in your job you could never find enough meaning in your spouse you could never find enough meaning in being a mother you could never find enough meaning in any of these things and at the end of the day before you went to bed when your head hit the pillow it was still hollow inside the Lord drove you to that point of brokenness to that point of desperation, to the point where you were like, I'm in trouble. If he doesn't help me, I have no other options. And that was the point he was looking for. You see, in the story of the people of God, what Paul is referring to here is, in essence, the Lord has from the very fall itself until now built the entirety of the church to get to that point, to say, we have no hope apart from the Lord. Unable to save myself, unable to fix my circumstances, unable to fix the loneliness inside, unable to conquer the depression, unable to fix all of the broken parts that are flawed in me. If help doesn't come from the outside, I will never find it. You see, that's what the Lord is doing here in Galatians, explaining that's how He works. (laughs) He loves His people to be desperate. Not desperate in the sense of like destitute and poor and all. Desperate in the sense of recognizing He's their only hope. He's the only way. The only source of life, the only source of truth, the only one. But interestingly, he doesn't just take him to that point and leave them, right? He's not some malicious, evil God who says, I just want you to be miserable, how? Right? He takes his people to this point of brokenness and then gives them all of the riches of heaven. I mean, again, this is the illustration here is of inheritance. You get everything. You get all of the wealth. You get everything that you can imagine. You get all goodness. It's given to you. He's going to explain what that means in a moment. 
Again, this idea that as the child matures, he arrives at the date that is set by his father, he arrives at the right time, then all blessing is given to him. The Lord is patient in his salvation. That begs a question, isn't it? Doesn't it? How, how patient are we when we go to interact with God's promises? I mean, to think that he used really 6,000 years of human history to build to the perfect point where Jesus comes. He's comfortable enough with the plan of salvation to use thousands of years to build to the arrival of Jesus. And I get grumpy if my prayers aren't answered by like this afternoon. I'm sure that's not your experience, right? You're much more patient than I am, all of you. That when it comes time to interact with the Lord and Him answering our prayers or giving us help or filling us with joy or taking us out of that dark, dark place and the sorrow within, that we want it done immediately, don't we? We forget that the Lord loves to work through processes because as He does that, He arrives, He brings us to these points where we arrive at dependency upon Him. But the beautiful thing is, again, it's not like he just takes us somewhere and leaves us. And Paul builds this point here. It's not that it's just, well, this child gets nothing. No, no, the child gets everything. They get all of the blessings and riches of the family. Let's see exactly what they are. Second point here. In Christ, God displays his provision um, of salvation. All of the provision of salvation, all the glories of heaven are provided in Jesus In the same way, verse 3, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So in the same way with these children being raised by the Roman slaves, uh, that uh, we were enslaved to law and all of these things we didn't uh, understand yet. But, this is one of my favorite verses in this book. When the fullness of time had come. So the Lord was at work patiently ordering all things until this one moment when the fullness of time had come. And even, again, pagan historians, those that even hate the Lord Jesus himself, recognize this period in human history is magnificent. It's unique and it is spectacular, right? All of the the known world is united under a culture Greek culture had spread around and captured the hearts and minds of all people. There's a a unified tongue that accompanies that culture. And that unified tongue and unified culture have basically a unified philosophical system, right? There's a reason why we still read, or hear about at least, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. The, the, The foundational worldview that was arriving at this time was amazing, And politically, a spectacular time as Rome is coming in and there's this um, relative period of of peace and safety in the Pax Romana and this uh, unique time in human history. And all of that taking place while the Jewish faith had kind of come to this point where they were desperate. They had begun to realize, we can't do this on our own. We have to have a Messiah. He's got to come from outside. He's got to be something different than what we are. But in this fullness of time, God sent forth 
his son. And then here, just rattle off a couple of like amazing foundational, world-changing principles just so quickly, right? God sends his son. Where does the plan of salvation come from? It comes from the father who sends his son, the Lord. Well, he becomes the Lord Jesus. He's the second person of the Trinity at this point, but steps into time and space, steps inside humanity, steps inside the womb of a woman, born of a woman. Now, this is amazing how the Lord would send his spirit and in some way create DNA. I don't know what Jesus' DNA looked like, but it had to have been very cool. To make that inside the womb, divinely and spectacularly, supernaturally, so that this child grows who is 100% God and 100% man, and then be born, and I love this, and it doesn't say born king of the universe, he is king of the universe. Doesn't say born king of creation. He is king of creation. Born under the law. So that thing that had been given years and years and years ago, that thing that was functioning as the guardrails of the church, that thing that was the gigantic flashing neon sign to say, you need a savior, would suddenly apply to him. This is really cool, right? He's not born a hypocrite. That's actually really significant. It's not like Jesus is born and say, well, those rules apply to you, but they don't apply to me. He's born under the same set of rules that we are. And he kept them perfectly. Born under the law that he created. Born under the law that he, he delivered. He is the Logos. He's the word of God. Born under the law that was built upon his authority, and yet he resided under it. Stepping inside our shoes in order, verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. So he, he stepped into our lives to redeem us. Now here on this day, we, we think of this particularly not in terms of the death so much, but the resurrection, right? Right? The proof that he actually accomplished it. That the greatest enemy that he had to deal with had been beaten. Even death couldn't contain him. And death gets everybody else. He is the mighty God. And interestingly here, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, this is also intensely neat because Roman adoption was very uh, special in some ways. In that it was irrevocable. Right? Cool word. Irrevocable. It's a fun one to say. Meaning that if you had your own children and they turned out to be duds, you could remove them from your inheritance. They're gone. Right? You could easily do that. You adopt a child, you can't. Right? Roman law, that's absolutely the case. Adoption was irrevocable. So when you adopted a child in Roman law, that was yours forever. And was, in some senses, almost more a part of your family than even your biological ones. Because you could get rid of your biological ones, but you can't get rid of that one anymore. Right? They're, they're there permanently and forever and for always. They are yours. 
And it's interesting here that taking up the, the culture of the day, what is it that Jesus goes to accomplish? Well, he comes under the law. He redeems those that are under the law so that we might be adopted as the children of God. So that we will be brought into the family. So that we get all of that love and affection. We get all of the rights and privileges. We get access to the family income. We get uh, the name of the family. We get all of the joy of our Father pouring out His affection upon us. And no matter how bad of a dud we think we are, He can't get rid of us. That would be appropriate. I started with Michael Jackson and Raheem Sterling illustrations because those are the two that kind of popped in my mind of people that had access to unbearable riches far too early. And what Paul is teaching us and the Holy Spirit is teaching us here is that the Lord in His infinite wisdom put a stall on that development to say, no, you have to take a time as the people of God to learn how desperately needy you are. But once Jesus comes, all bets are off. All those things that were withheld from you in some sense are not anymore. You have access to the Father. You have the Spirit within you. You have the fruit of the Spirit pouring out from you everywhere. You have redemption. You have transformation. You have the hope of heaven. You have all of the rights and privileges of being in the family of God. Now there are some of us here that, thankfully, this, this doesn't enter into our brain. Right? Thinking about sonship or daughtership of being part of the family of God, that just is not something that we think about that often. The way our family dynamics worked as a kid, it just doesn't cross our brain. There are, however, others of us in here that our identity is constantly a battle for us. Right? We're understanding who we are and how we're made and why we're valuable. And if we feel loved, and if we feel like we have any sense of worth or meaning, those are real and constant struggles. Right? Again, some of us, when we go to bed at night, that little voice in our ear is terrifying in regards to this very thing. And I would say, brother or sister, if that describes you, this is your new narrative. Right? This is an adoption that's irrevocable. God can't get rid of it. You are His forever. It cannot be undone. He cannot take His love away from you. He cannot take His name off of you. You are His beloved child. You cannot get away from Him. Well, the natural kind of question that you would then go is, this sounds too good to be true. What's the catch? Right? Like, this is too good to be true. There, there is obviously, there is a catch to the story. Something has gone wrong for this type of mathematical equation to happen. 
In fact, actually, if you're a bit of a pessimist, you would say, well, I believe all of those promises. I just believe they're for someone else. And I'm the kind of loophole that fell through the cracks, right? If they're the real pessimist. In fact, actually, if you're a bit more of the kind of chin out, bowed back, neck up sort of kind of argumentative individual, not that we have any of those people in here. I'm speaking to folks outside, obviously. We might say, prove it. If you say it's so free, if you say this deal is so good, prove it. Right? I mean, anytime you you get the phone calls for the people like, you want a free 10 years in the Bahamas, prove it. I'd like to see that. Right? What's interesting, that's actually what God does. He proves it. You have all of these rights and privileges. You have all of these blessings. You have access to God. You have all of this. Well, how does God prove it? Verse 6. And because you are sons, because this is true, because the deal is so amazing, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts as proof. Now, He comes crying, Abba, Father, Abba is uh, Aramaic... Dearest Father, term of respect and endearment. Um, not the casual term that is sometimes presented there. It, it is dearest respect and intimacy. You have this the spirit, verse 7, so that you understand, so that you're no longer a slave but a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. You have all the rights and privileges of being part of the family of heaven. So there's an essence in which you were saying, well, prove it, God. If the deal is really so good, if you really give me so much, I'd like you to prove it a little bit. And he says, sure. As if you didn't understand, here's the Spirit of God. Take the Spirit. There's proof that you have everything that you need. There's proof that when you die, you go to heaven. There's proof that the second that you die, your body passes directly into, I mean, your spirit passes directly into glory as your body falls to the earth. Here's proof that God can't rescind his promise, that he can't change the terms of the deal. Here's proof that you have the uh, Son of God interceding for you. Here is all of the proof that you need, the Spirit of God. Uh, you remember this same type of conversation taking place in the ministry of Jesus where uh, the, the sick man is led into his presence and Jesus looks at him and he's there and he's crippled and Jesus says, well, go, your sins are forgiven. And the guys are like, what is that about? How do you have the authority to forgive sins? Who are you? And he's like, fine, I'll prove it. Be healed, go away. Right? And the guy stands up and walks out. He's like, ah, I can walk. And then, What Jesus is doing is saying, look, I'm going to do something much bigger. I'm going to forgive him of his sins, and I'll give you proof of it with something lesser, the healing. We have all of the glories of heaven that are given to us, and what is the proof that we have now? It's the Spirit of God. If you have the Spirit of God, you are a son or daughter of the Most High, and nothing can change that. Now, the reality of the matter is, not everyone has the Spirit. That's what the whole book of 1 John is really written about. To help us discern, do I actually know the Lord? Because while this is an amazing deal, the Lord gives salvation and all kinds of blessing for free to us at the cost of His Son, 
Not everybody gets it. Because not everybody's received it. It's given freely. Those are the terms of the deal. You want glory, you want salvation, you want meaning, you want love, you want affection, you want a father who constantly cares for you, who loves you so much he doesn't give you everything right away. He takes perfect care of you, who watches out for you, who sanctifies you, who promises you blessing when you die. You want all of that. You still have to receive his salvation in Jesus. And the reality of the matter is that part of what the law does, functioning as that guardian, functioning as that giant flashing neon sign pointing to Jesus, part of what it does is to ready us for this story. To say, one, am I going to be willing to accept the salvation that God gives? Am I going to be willing to agree to play by His terms? that I freely accept salvation based upon Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and His work only and not my own? Am I willing to trust in Him instead of me? And then secondly, am I actually going to care about that after I am saved? Or am I going to let that good news, those promises and those riches, redefine how I see myself, how I see my neighbors, and how I see the world around me? Am I going to let it, much like Michael Jackson, break me so that I get bored of the blessings of God and I find myself driving up and down the hallways of the people of God at three in the morning in my spiritual go-kart, so to speak, because I'm bored out of my skull? Or are we going to find a people of God who are captivated with their Savior and actively seeking to use every single resource they can for His kingdom? Just dumbstruck at God's mercy. How will he find us when he comes back? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the salvation that is in Jesus. Thank you that we cannot save ourselves. Thank you that the law teaches us that I am never good enough. I'm not. I can't be and no one else. Only Jesus is good enough. Thank you that he was born under the law. He got a chance to prove it and he did. Thank you that he was even tempted by the devil himself and did not sin. Thank you that he is our Savior. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, give us a clearer, more beautiful vision of the one who has redeemed us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.